You know, I think that song, it's one of my favorite Christmas songs. And I, I think because of the reality of it, it, it strikes a sobering chord. Did you feel that as we sang that? It wasn't just lighthearted, but the, the tone of the Christian life is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So we could say rejoice, even in a mournful way, because just like back in the Old Testament when they were saying, one day, one day, one day, Emmanuel will come. In the same way we live in this in-between time, where we long for Emmanuel to come again. So rejoice. Rejoice in the midst of this broken world and know that one day God with us will come again. He will be our Savior even more so than he is today on that day. Amen? Amen. Well, I'm excited this morning to continue our series here through Mark's Gospel called Who Is This? And the idea of this is several times throughout this account, people are encountering Jesus and they ask the question, who is this? Or they don't understand his identity fully. And today in Mark chapter 6, when Jesus visits his hometown of Nazareth, again, people pose the question, who is this? And unfortunately, they answer the question, well, he's just a carpenter. Um, and so to, this morning, I pray that we will be freshly made aware of who is this. So the title of the message is simply this, the carpenter. Let's go to the Lord and ask for help, and then we'll dive back into God's words. Lord, thank you for the season, and thank you for the anticipation of joy that it reminds us of. That, Lord, you have come and will come again. And I pray this morning that as we open your word, we would be freshly made aware who is this? Who is this that the winds and waves obey him? Who is this that has power to forgive sins? Who is this that does miracles by his hands? I pray that we would freshly see Jesus. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Which is harder to hit? Any baseball fans here? Any baseball fans? Okay, it's been a, any Braves fans? Okay, all right, all right. So um, in baseball... Which is harder to hit, a 80-mile-per-hour pitch or a 95-mile-per-hour pitch? Which one is harder to hit? The, the jury is split. Because the answer is, it's actually a trick question. It actually depends on what the hitter is expecting. You know, in baseball, there is a pitch known as the change-up. And what the change-up is, is after a pitcher throws several fastballs, 95 miles per hour, 95 miles per hour, 95 miles per hour, then in baseball analogy, they take a little something off the pitch, meaning they don't throw it quite as hard. And what happens, because the batter is locked into a particular speed and the ball comes slower, they swing way early. And that's where you see the crazy swings where they fall down or they miss the pitch completely. Here's the tricky thing about the change-up. The change-up's effectiveness has nothing to do with its velocity. It has nothing to do with its movement. It even has little to do with its placement. The effectiveness of the, of the change-up is based solely on the wrong expectation of the hitter. Why do I bring that up? Well, because in this passage of Scripture today, in a really very real sense, Jesus came to earth as the ultimate change-up. That is, he said things and did things 
and acted in ways and spoke in ways that no one expected. To put it simply, Jesus was a surprising Savior. Now to be sure, there were some in the nation of Israel that expected a deliverer to come. The Old Testament is loaded with prophecies about a coming king that would one day come to set his people free. And at Christmas time, we often quote many of those. For instance, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah, but one will come from you who will be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord, in the majestic name of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. So because the scripture says things like this repeatedly, the Israelites during Jesus' day expected a Messiah who would be a conqueror and drive out Rome. They expected a political figure who would immediately rise on the scene and bring about a new day for the nation of Israel. They anticipated a miracle worker who would wield his power on behalf of his people and to the harm of his enemies. But if you know the Bible story, if you've heard about Jesus or read any of the gospel's accounts, you know this simple reality. That's not the way Jesus came. When Jesus arrived on earth, he came as the supposed son of a poor carpenter. He spent his life not with the political or social elite, but with a ragtag group of fishermen and tax collectors. Jesus was rejected by his own people. Why? Because he didn't fit the Messiah mold. He was not what they expected. He was a change-up. This became painfully obvious when shortly into his earthly ministry, Jesus visited his hometown and was subsequently and categorically rejected. But before we are too hard on Jesus' folks from Nazareth, let's admit, let's all just be honest here for a moment, that there have been times in all of our lives when we have questioned the Lord because he worked in ways we did not expect, right? Sometimes God does things that we do not expect and we act as the judge over the Lord. Like when the door of opportunity suddenly closes. Or when the relationship just doesn't turn out the way that we hoped. Or when the numbers just don't seem to add up. Or when life is harder than we think it should be. In all of these times, it can be tempting to instinctively mistrust God and his wisdom. To say, God, what are you doing? Aren't you paying attention? Why didn't you ask me about what you were going to do? I have a better plan than you have. The reality is, as you read the scripture, though, if we were careful about what the Bible says, we should actually expect God to work in ways we don't expect. It seems that he delights in that reality. Isaiah chapter 55 says it this way, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. This is the Lord's declaration. In other words, God thinks on a different plane than we think. God works on a different plane than we work. Or skip ahead to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 27. God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. To put it simply, God's wisdom is always unequaled and often unconventional. 
God's wisdom is always unequaled and often unconventional. That is, God is always doing wise and mighty and great things, and most of the time we don't understand them. He works in unconventional ways, which leads me to my point this morning. We must trust God's ways in spite of appearances. Can you say that phrase with me? In spite of appearances. Ready? In spite of appearances. Let's do it. Let's, okay, we, I had trouble with the 9 a.m. on this, really. I think Pastor Rod was leading everybody astray with his, his intonation. He was preaching it. Okay, so let's just do it in spite of appearances. Can you do it? In spite of appearances. Just that pace one more time. In spite of appearances. We're going to say this like 25 times, okay? So I want you to trust that God always knows what's best. Oh, you're so much better than the 9 a.m. Cut that, cut that, yeah. So what is our agenda this morning? Well, we want to trust the Lord always in spite of appearance. Look, friends, I want us to believe that God is good, that God knows what he's doing, and if you've trusted in the gospel, God is actually working for your benefit. It is this reality that the residents of Nazareth missed. Jesus defied their expectations. They looked at Jesus and they found him wanting. They thought he was silly. He wasn't what they expected. He wasn't what they anticipated. And so they rejected him. Oh, that we would be not be guilty of the same error. So in order to guard against that travesty, I want to remind us from this text of scripture, two truths that are unchanging about Jesus. Ready? No matter what your life looks like, no matter what's going on, these two things are true about our Savior. So, in spite of appearances, number one, Jesus' authority is undeniable. When Jesus got to the scene in Nazareth, he did what he usually did. He went to the synagogue. This was his typical custom when he went from town to town. And his reputation preceded him to his hometown. They already knew that he was a powerful teacher and a miracle worker. So when he gets up in the synagogue and stuff starts happening, it is not surprising. Look at Mark chapter 6, verse number 2. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom that has been given to him, and how do these miracles are performed by his hands? What was self-evident to everyone that heard Jesus teach and saw him do things was that Jesus was a man of authority. In fact, when you read the Gospel of Mark, one of the major themes traced throughout the whole book is this idea of Christ's authority. For instance, Jesus taught with authority. Mark chapter 1, verse number 22. They were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority. And not like the scribes. Jesus had authority over demons. Mark 1 verse number 26. And the unclean spirit threw him into a convulsion. Shouted with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed. And so they began to ask each other. What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits. And they obey him. Jesus had authority over sin. Mark chapter 2 verse number 10. But so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take up your mat and go home. But that's not it. Jesus had authority over nature. Mark chapter 4 verse 39. He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the sea, silence, be still. The wind ceased and there was a great calm. Jesus even had authority over death itself. Mark chapter 5 verse 35. While he was still speaking. 
People came from the synagogue's leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? And he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old and they were utterly astounded. You would be, wouldn't you? Writ large throughout Mark's gospel and the entire scripture is simply this. Jesus is a bad man. That's a paraphrase. He has authority. What he says goes. How he acts is divine. He is powerful. He has a plan. He is in control. No one can defy him. But listen. Just because the residents of Nazareth recognized Jesus' authority doesn't mean they liked it. Look at verse 2 and 3 again. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? And how are these miracles performed by his hand? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? These are not sincere questions. These are not them really trying to figure out how Jesus is able to do these things. These are not so subtle accusations. In essence, the residents of Nazareth are saying, this can't be happening. This is just some kind of trick. At this point in the narrative, Jesus had only been gone from his hometown for a couple years, and they were like, we know this guy didn't go to some elite rabbi training. This, this got to be a joke. This is not real. The text goes so far to say, Mark chapter 6, verse number 3, and they were offended by him. He's just a carpenter. So right in front of them was the Son of God wielding undeniable and unprecedented authority. I mean, he's doing things and saying things that nobody else has ever said or done. And they look at him and they spurn him. This reminds us of a profound reality. Get this. It is possible to acknowledge the Lord's authority and still not appreciate it. That is, you can look at God, and when he acts and speaks in ways that you are not expecting or desiring, you can say, yeah, you're the Lord. Yeah, you have the right and the might to do that. You are the creator of the universe. After all, I acknowledge that, but God, how could you? Shouldn't you consult me first? My opinion is valuable. I've got a lot to offer, Lord. If you would just get on board with my agenda then you would make better plans. You would do things in better ways. Why don't you just consult me before you act? That is not what I expected, and therefore I reject it. The problem with this perspective is that we have functionally switched places with the Lord. When you say in your heart things like, God, I'll follow you as long as you tell me to do what I want to do, you're not letting God be God. You're being God. You're just looking for a rubber stamp. That is not submission to the authority of King Jesus. That is somehow making King Jesus submit to your authority. How backwards that is. And that's exactly what was going on in Nazareth. We don't like the way that you're leading, Lord. We don't like what you're doing. We would rather you act in ways that we expect. Now, I realize that this is difficult to put into practice. But friends, when we must trust the Lord's authority... 
when he acts and speaks in ways that we don't expect, we are essentially like the residents of Nazareth saying, what gives you the right? And the Lord is essentially saying, I am who I am. I'm Jesus. I'm the king. I have authority regardless if you bow to it or not. And here's the reality, friends. Ready? Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa pause. Ready? Jesus has authority. No matter what things look like, he still has authority. Remember when the children of Israel were chased out of Egypt and the Red Sea was in front of them and the enemies of Pharaoh were at their back. Guess what? Jesus, the Lord, had the authority to part the Red Sea. When God's people were threatened with genocide in the book of Esther, the Lord had the authority to put a young girl in a position of authority and influence the king. God had authority even when the deck was stacked against them. When Rome tried to extinguish Christianity, the Lord had the authority to scatter his people throughout the world and cause the mission to go global. When the Ethiopian official longed to know God but had no access to him, the Lord had authority to send Philip to proclaim the gospel to him. The Lord always has authority. Doesn't matter what things look like. God is always at work. I love the way John Piper puts it when he says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. Look, I don't know what appearances are in your life right now. I don't know what seems to be true to you. But I do know this. Christ has authority in your situation. He has not relinquished his authority over your life no matter how hard or bad or difficult or strange things appear. The Lord has authority in your situation. He may not work in ways you expect. In fact, he probably won't. But rest assured, he will work. Look, the Lord takes no days off. Zero. There's a great story about William Cooper, the 18th century English poet. Uh, during his life, he enjoyed a successful writing career, credited by some as being the forerunner to the romantic poets of his day. But Cooper's life, in spite of his writing success, was far from easy. In fact, he was repeatedly institutionalized for what we would have now clearly seen as serious mental health issues. It was during these times of institutionalization that Cooper turned to Christ and became a prolific hymn writer. His most famous hymn is called, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, still sang several hundred years later in the church today. But one of his lesser known hymns is called, get this, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I think he captures the essence of the work of God in this little verse. Listen very carefully to what it says. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. And he will make it plain. In other words, sometimes when we look at the work of God and don't have a heart of faith, we are sure to err. Every time when we look at our lives and things don't fit the way that we expect them to do, and we don't look at them through the lens of faith, when we take off our faith glasses and allow unbelief to rule the day, we look at God and we say, that's stupid, that's foolish, why didn't you ask me about it? But when we put on the glasses of faith, and look at the work of God in our lives. We say, man, Lord, you are your own interpreter. You'll make it plain. 
you have a plan, and it's not just a plan, it's, the, it's a good one. As a matter of fact, it's the best one. We can trust the Lord to be working because he never, ever, 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 ever relinquishes his authority. No matter what the appearances are in our lives, no matter how dark the valley, no matter how deep the trial, God is in charge. Let's not be like the people of Nazareth who couldn't see what was right in front of them because it was different than they expected. Number two, not only is Jesus' authority unprecedented, but Jesus' grace is accessible in spite of appearances. What I mean by this is no matter what your circumstances, not only is God in charge, but he will extend grace to those who trust in him. Every single time. If you will put your hope and trust in the Lord, no matter what the appearances are, the Lord Jesus Christ is ready, willing, and able to give you grace. When you look over in the parallel passage to this in the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us that the residents of Nazareth felt entitled to the work of Jesus. They wanted the friends and family discount because Jesus was a hometown boy. Look at what it says over in Luke chapter 4, verse number 23. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum do here in your hometown also. Now, although their request was both wrong-headed and wrong-hearted, it does reveal something profound. Namely, Jesus generously gives grace. Jesus was out in the world in places like Capernaum, ministering powerfully and giving grace to those who would extend their need to him. Jesus was a master of giving grace to people. In fact, just in that town, in that one single solitary town of Capernaum, here's what Jesus did. During his earthly ministry, he healed Peter's mother-in-law. He healed the paralytic man. He healed the woman with the issue of blood. He healed two blind men. He healed the man with a withered hand and a mute demoniac. In addition, he provided a miraculous catch of fish. He fed 5,000 with a few loaves and fishes. He paid taxes from a fish's mouth. I really like that one. And he raised the little girl from the dead. Not a bad resume for one town. So why didn't Jesus come walking into Nazareth and put on a show for the hometown crowd? Well, the text actually tells us. Look at what it says. Mark chapter 6, verse number 5. Track with it. This is amazing. He was not able to do a miracle there. Why? And he was amazed at their unbelief. Did you catch that? The text says... That the omnipotent creator of the universe, the one who flung the worlds into existence with a word, was not able to do a miracle there because of their unbelief. Does this mean that somehow, for a minute, Jesus somehow lost his divine mojo? Like he goes to Nazareth and he's like, ooh, I... The force is not strong here. Is that what's going on? No, not at all. This is actually a self-imposed limitation that Jesus puts on himself. Say, what do you mean by that? Well, how many parents in here? Parents? Okay. How many of you, not parents, have seen a child before? Raise your hand. Okay, good. That gets everybody else. If you haven't, please come talk to me because I don't know where you're from. Okay. So suppose a child comes to a parent and asks for candy 
for every meal. At some point, the parent is not going to just say, no, I won't do that. The parent is actually going to say, honey, I can't do that. Is it because they don't have the power? No, it's not because they have the power, not have the power. It's because something in their character and something for, about their affection for the child says, it, to act in your best interest and to act consistently with my character, I cannot do that. I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. I can't do it. I cannot perform mighty works here because that is not the way that I choose to reveal myself. You see, the Lord could have chosen to reveal himself to his people in any number of ways. But get this, the channel through which God's grace flows is our faith. Let me say that again. The channel through which God's grace flows is our faith. God could choose to work through any way that he wanted to. But he has chosen to tell us repeatedly in the scripture that the means through which he chooses to work is our faith. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 6. It says this, and without faith it is, what's the word church? Impossible to please God. You cannot please God apart from faith. That's what the text says. So Jesus is saying here, Jesus is saying, look, I have all the authority in the world to do miracles here. But the only way I'm going to work on your behalf is if you believe. I limit myself in that way. The channel through which I choose to work is faith. The message of Mark 6 seems to be this. L listen, because I'm going to kind of jumble the words here. God works in unexpected ways for those who expect him to work. God works in unexpected ways for those who expect him to work. Here's the implication. Are you expecting God to work in your life? Because if you aren't, he won't. That's not magic. That's not hocus pocus. That's God's word. He did no mighty works there because of their unbelief. It is impossible to please God without faith. So right now, today, in the darkest corners of your life, in the deepest valleys that you are experiencing, the hardest parts that you are wrestling with right now, are you believing that God can do something? Because if you aren't, he won't. That seems to be the clear teaching of the scripture that Jesus is grace. It's grace. It's accessible to you. But the only way it's accessible if you will believe him. Do you believe that he is able to do above and beyond all that you ask or think? Friends, let it not be said of your life that he did no mighty works there because of your unbelief. Let it not be said of Gospel Hope Church that he did no mighty works in Atlanta because of their unbelief. Let it not be said of our world, which is desperate and broken and needing of the gospel of Christ to go to the far reaches. Let it not be said 
that he did no mighty works there because the people of God did not believe. Look, sometimes we can think of our Lord and his posture towards us. Arms folded, hardened, aloof, bothered, not leaning in towards us at all. As if we have to say like the right magic words to get him to act. Like God's like some sort of genie in the bottle and we need the right incantation. Pray the right way. Say the right formula. And then probably he won't do anything anyway. Friends, that's, that is a posture of unbelief towards our God. But the posture of God towards us. Look at what it says in the book of Second Chronicles. For the eyes of the Lord they roam throughout the earth. Why? To show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted towards him. God wants to work on our behalf. But he's looking for a type of person to work through. And the type of person is anyone and everyone who would dare to believe that his word is true. We must believe that God's grace is accessible to us. So you might hear all this and you say, Ryan, I want to believe that. I do. I want to believe that in spite of appearances, Jesus has authority and grace for me. But honestly, my appearances can be pretty strong sometimes. I look at my life and there is this crippling sense of fear and unbelief in my heart. Well, here's the good news. Tucked in this story, this sobering story of Jesus' hometown rejected him, is a gem of good news. Look at what it says, Mark chapter 6, verse number 5. He was not able to do a miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. So here in this city, this town... This culture of unbelief. There were a few who dared to put their hope in Jesus. There were a few that in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the doubt, in the midst of the posture that said God can't and won't do anything, who were saying, I think he can. And guess what? They got healed. Because God's grace is available to those who will put their hope in him. So even in the midst of all the darkness that is around you, even in a culture of doubt and unbelief, God is still able and willing. He's both of those things to move towards you. I love what Jesus says when he's teaching on faith in another place. Matthew chapter 17, verse one, number 20. For truly, I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, be moved, and it will be thrown into the sea. Why? Because nothing will be impossible for you. Why does Jesus use that analogy? I think the emphasis of the mustard seed is this. It's not really about the quality or the quantity of your faith. It's really about where you put that faith in. It's not about the quality or the, or the, um, the, quality or the quantity of your faith but about the object of your faith. 
So I'm not saying walk out of here and say, Lord, I'm believing you for a new car. Maybe. Lord, I'm believing you that that house note comes through. Maybe. I'm saying root your feet deeply in the promises of God. Put your mustard seed like your broke down, little, small, weak faith in the word of God, in the promises of God, in the work of Jesus, and nothing will be impossible for you. We are to believe not just in the right way. The most important thing is believe in the right thing. Put your hope in the one who has authority and grace to spare, and he will freely give it to all of us. And my encouragement to all of us this morning is would you dare? Would you dare to believe? Would you dare to believe that no matter what the appearances are in your life, that he is ready, willing, and able to help you? When Jesus came to earth the first time, he did not come as many expected him to do. He didn't come as a king or with a throne to save his people from any political enemy. Rather, he came as a carpenter. But that carpenter would eventually lay down his life to save us from our greatest enemies. No, Jesus might not have been the deliverer that we expected, but friends, he was the one we needed. And he is the one that we need today. Don't let your expectations about what God should or should not do in your life prevents you from seeing that he is the deliverer that you truly need. So right now, I, I want to call us to respond in two very simple ways. I'm going to ask the prayer team if they would move to the sides right now and just be prepared to pray with folks if they are willing to do so. I want to ask you to do, the first thing is this, confess your unbelief. As we've been talking, maybe you've realized that there have been some pockets of unbelief in your life. Maybe you have doubted that God could forgive you or love you or empower you or help you. Maybe you have been functionally living as if God is inactive in your life. I want to invite you right now, right now in this moment, to bring that to him. Would you just say the same thing? That's what confess means. Say the same thing about your unbelief that God says about your unbelief. He sees it. He knows it. Will you unashamedly take it to him right now? So I'm going to invite everybody right now to quietly talk to the Lord about pockets of unbelief in your life. Confess those right now. Father, we confess (laughs) 
Lord, we confess our doubt in your word. We confess our questioning of your goodness. We confess our criticism of your wisdom. We confess that when you work in ways that we do not expect, often, Lord, we fail to believe you. Fail to believe that you're good and wise and for us. Oh God, we confess. Don't let us be like the people of Nazareth. Who when they saw the Savior, who thought them, who thought him silly because he wasn't what they expected. Oh God, we confess. In Jesus' name. Second thing I want to invite you to do right now is not only confess your unbelief, but cry out for help. There's a beautiful story in John chapter 6. Jesus, Jesus is there, and a centurion comes who has a servant who's sick. So the centurion comes to Jesus and says, Lord, can, can you make my man, my, my servant better? And Jesus responds with, can I? All things are possible for those who believe. And the centurion falls down at Jesus' feet and essentially says this, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. You ever been there? So the centurion brought his broke down faith to Jesus and essentially says, I want to believe. Or maybe, I want to want to believe. Help me. Maybe that's where you're at right now. And here's the good news. That servant got healed. Jesus was honored when we bring our broke down faith to him and say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Change me. Help me to trust that you are good and that you are wise and that you are king and you want what's best for me. Lord, make my heart believe. I need your help right now. So maybe you just need to simply pray that prayer right now. Lord, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Stir in me faith for the dark corners of my life where I don't think you can be at work, for the addiction that I can't break, for the pattern of sin that has been with me for 10 years, for the relationship that is broken that is so beyond repair. Lord, help my unbelief because I've stopped believing you. Help me. I want to invite you to do that right now. Right now, there's some folks standing by, and if you want to go pray with somebody, they would be happy to have a word of prayer with you. We're just going to take a minute and talk to God. So you can do it by yourself. You can do it with somebody sitting by you. You can do it with the prayer team. Why don't we take a minute and just pray, God, help our unbelief. God, 
I pray that you would kindle in our hearts faith. Help us to see the person and work of Jesus and be transformed by him. May we look on his face and become more like him. Your word says that faith comes by hearing. And God, I pray that we would hear your word this morning. Lord, root it in our hearts and help us to believe. Lord, let it not be said of us that you did no mighty works in our lives, in our city, in our world because of our unbelief. Cleanse us, change us, Lord, help our unbelief. Turn our eyes to the Savior right now. You have done all that is necessary, Lord, to show us that you are good and that you are wise and that you have a plan. You have demonstrated that preeminently on the work of Jesus on the cross to take our sins and rising victoriously from the dead. Lord, help us to be captivated by Jesus that we may see that you are for us when we put our hope in him. Oh God, make us believe this morning. Turn our hearts towards you. In the precious name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship our Lord right now. Make this a prayer.